Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Central Service. How are you doing? Yay, great. Really great to be with you. Uh, particularly on what is a really significant Sunday for you as a service. You like the venue? Good, good. Um, I hope that wasn't a no that people were laughing at. Um, I, I really want to encourage you at the start of this new chapter for you as a service to dream big for the future. I want to encourage you to have a sense of faith and optimism in your hearts for you personally, uh, but also for this service and also for our church. And I kind of want to speak into that this morning, actually. Uh, we started a new sermon series at the start of the year under the umbrella Consuming Fire, which is basically all about how do we cultivate habits that help us follow Jesus as effectively as possible. And this morning, I want to look at the topic of perseverance, at less keeping going when things are tough, though I guess that's part of it, more fighting for breakthrough. How do we fight for the breakthrough that we long for in here, the kind of dreams and promises that God has put into our hearts? And I want to look at this uh, topic through the lens of an Old Testament story that spans a number of Old Testament books, uh, including Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, 1 Chronicles, just to name a few. Obviously, there's not time to read all of them, so I just want to read a snippet, but then set it in the wider context of which it plays a part. So if anyone has a Bible, please turn to Zechariah chapter 4. That'll be fantastic. Uh, if you don't know where it is, it's the last but one book in the Old Testament, Zechariah, Malachi, then we're into Matthew, and we're going to read the whole of chapter 4 together. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. This is what the prophet Zechariah writes. He says this. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, don't you know? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Again, I asked, what are these two olive branches beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, don't you know? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Great. Well, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> what on earth is that all about? And how does it speak to the subject of fighting for breakthrough? Uh, well, I want to look at the story of the Old Testament character Zerubbabel, uh, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. And for simplicity's sake, I've divided his story into four acts, four chapters, each of which we can apply to this topic of fighting for breakthrough and to our lives. And act one for Zerubbabel is this. He gets a dream, a vision, a call from God. That bit of context to the story. Uh, Israel... Zerubbabel's people have been in captivity, in exile, in Babylon, the world superpower of the day, for 70 years. Far away from home and in a culture that's riven with foreign gods. And for many of them, it must have felt like either God's abandoned us or his plans to redeem all of creation, they look like they have totally and completely failed. But now after 70 years, there's a changing of the guard. 
New leader, new world superpower. Persia is the superpower, Cyrus is the leader. And in the first year of his reign, he says to the exiles, to the Jews, you can now return home and you can start rebuilding the temple and in due course the city and the nation. But this is a huge moment. And Zerubbabel, he's the king figure. He's the descendant of David. For those of you who are interested, uh, a kind of a genealogy of his is coming up on the screen, also an ancestor of Jesus. He's the guy tasked with leading the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. Probably, we reckon, around about 60,000 of them in total. So massive moment, not just because they get to return home, many of them seeing home for the first time, but actually more than that, this is huge because they're all carrying what I might call prophetic promises from God in their heart. That somehow through the temple, through Jerusalem, through Israel, the whole world is going to get impacted. And everything that's wrong with the world is going to get put right. Justice will come. Peace will reign. Righteousness will flow like a never-failing stream, to quote some of the prophets. And here, now, it feels like the prophetic promises are coming true. And Zerubbabel is the guy tasked with bringing those promises into reality. This is act one for Zerubbabel. Living with this dream, this call from God. And act one for him is also act one for us. And I kind of want to call us, for you guys as a service, for us as a church, to begin, I guess, this year. I think we can still say it's New Year, end of January. To live with this sense of optimism, this expectancy, this sense of call to dream for what is to come. I love how the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis describes faith in mere Christianity. He says, faith, it's less about believing the right things. Though I guess maybe that's part of it. He said, it's way more about stepping into a bigger story, a better story than one we'd simply write for little old me, for ourselves. He says this, the quote will be on the screen. God is a dynamic, pulsating activity. God's like a life. God's almost a kind of drama or a dance. And each of us has to enter that pattern, take their place in the dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we are made. If you started this year thinking, I, I want to find a new sense of meaning and fulfillment this year. I, I want my longings in here to be fulfilled. Part of what C.S. Lewis would say is this, you need to step into a better story. A bigger story than one you simply write for yourself. Do you live with that sense of expectancy, maybe now is a good time to remind us that the invitation of Jesus is a call into a better story, one that we'd simply write for ourselves. I'm sure many of you have heard of a guy called Ignatius of Loyola. He was a Spanish priest and theologian, founded the Jesuit order in 1534. And when they founded the order, they picked as their motto one Latin word, the word magis, which means more. And they chose it because they live with this conviction, God's always got more for us. There is always more. They, they live with this restless drive to keep imagining all that God could do in the future. In fact, Ignatius used to describe himself as continually living with one foot raised. What did he mean? Well, he, he lived with this conviction that God always has doors of opportunity for us to walk into. And he's like, I want to live in a permanent state of being ready to walk into them. You living with one foot raised right now? Do you live with this conviction? Yeah, there's more. I want to be ready to walk into what God's got for me. Do you know at the start of this year, there is more for you. As you move to this new venue, there is more for you as a service. Do you believe that? Let me give you an illustration here. Uh, one of the most iconic uh, television moments of the last 25 years uh, took place in uh, the autumn of 2009 
when a little-known 47-year-old Scottish lady stepped out onto the stage of the Clyde Auditorium in Scotland on the show Britain's Got Talent. Uh, the clip of Susan Boyle's audition quickly went viral around the world. Every major newspaper picked up on the story. Uh, I want to show you a heavily edited clip of that moment, uh, both to refresh your memories, maybe also partly because of the song that she picks, I Dreamed a Dream. This is about 90 seconds long. Let's play the clip now. <laughs> okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but he's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay. Big song. <laughs> yeah? Yes. I dreamed a dream in time gone by. When folks smiled, I was that, did you? Did you? No. up if you remember that moment? Over 10 years ago, my friends, you're getting old. You're getting old. Uh, the reason I show that clip is that is a metaphor for the story of the Bible. That is a metaphor for the adventure into which Jesus invites us. When Susan Boyle steps out onto that stage, nobody is expecting anything. People are laughing at her. You think you're going to outsell Elaine Page? You are kidding yourself. Move on, Susan. Next act, please. But by the end of that clip, Everyone in the auditorium is on its feet. Some are weeping. Everybody is applauding, even her fiercest critics, the judges. Within four years of that moment, she had sold 25 million records, like way above Elaine Page. That's a metaphor for the adventure into which Jesus invites us. At this point in the story, Zechariah chapter 4, little old Israel looks weak and insignificant and pathetic. Oh, you're carrying these dreams, Israel, that the world's going to get changed by you. You are kidding yourself. You are dreaming. In fact, if you've got to place a bet at this point in the story, who's going to stand the test of time? Little Israel or the might of Persia led by Cyrus? No one's going to bet on Israel. A few hundred years later, for Jesus the Israelite, it's much the same. People look at him and think, you're going to change the world? You're dreaming. They say things about him like, can anything good come from Nazareth? In fact, in Isaiah 53, there's a prophetic word about this Messiah figure that he's going to have no beauty to make us desire him. He doesn't look like a Hollywood hero. And followers of Jesus fare little better. Weak and insignificant. In fact, one ancient critic of the Christian faith, a Roman ruler called Celsus, who sounds a right laugh, he says this, 
Uh, one of the weaknesses of Christianity is all they can draw to themselves are stupid, ignorant, weak people. That's you, my friends. <laughs> That's me. Susan Boyle has stepped out onto stage. You are Susan Boyle. Not the message you hoped for when you came to church this morning, is it, hey? But God has a plan. That through the weak and through the lowly and through the insignificant, the world is going to get filled with the most beautiful music. And people are going to weep and dance for joy at the transformation that Jesus the Israelite and followers of Jesus the Israelite are going to bring. This is the adventure of God. How do I know there's always more? Because there's a bigger story that we can step into. You ready to walk into it? Now, one of the longings we've carried in our hearts over the last 18 months that we've talked about from the stage a few times is our longing for revival. Now, you look through history, there have just been moments where it seems like God has infused the church with his life and power in a particularly special way. And it's either changed the course of a nation, even human history. And we long for that because we don't want to settle for the status quo. We don't want to go through the motions. Like, we live with this conviction that where Jesus is king, the world is as it should be. So we want to see his kingdom in greater measure. We believe there's more. Are we trusting God for that? Oh, there's more. There's more for you. There's more for me. There's more for us. Why? Because there's a bigger story. This is act one for Zerubbabel. Realizing, oh, there's a bigger story that I get to play a part in. And then, and then, and then we get to act two. Which for Zerubbabel is this, a battle comes. A battle comes. Back to the story for a moment. So Zerubbabel leads the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. It all starts off really well. Like once they've settled in, first thing they do, repair the altar, worship God, then have a big celebration. Like this is a leader with his priorities in the right place. This is a leader who's putting God first. And then they get to work. And they start laying the foundation of the temple. They complete it in record time. It's like the prophetic promises are coming into reality. All their dreams are coming true. Then they have another party. And then a battle comes. And the battle for Zerubbabel comes in two forms. Number one, uh, there are some of the Jews in the community, some of the older ones, been around a little longer, maybe should know better. And they look at this foundation and they think, oh, I'm, I'm not sure this will be any good. And they get negative and critical and cynical. And it's like this negativity infects the whole of the people. And then secondly, there's external opposition. There's enemies of the Jews who don't want this project to succeed, and they start opposing them. Internal negativity, external opposition. Zerubbabel finds himself in the midst of a battle. And from the Bible's perspective, at least part of this battle is spiritual in nature. One of the reasons, one of the reasons we can conclude this is because of what we read in Zechariah 4, that this battle is overcome not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. This is a spiritual battle in which Zerubbabel finds himself and thousands of years later, followers of Jesus find themselves in exactly the same place. Ephesians 6 makes clear the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities in the heavenly realms. We are in the midst of a battle. Uh, back to C.S. Lewis for a moment. He lived with a conviction that story was a powerful way to communicate spiritual truth. And I think he communicates this battle idea brilliantly in the fifth book in the Narnia novel series, The Silver Chair. If you've read the book, if you know the story, uh, there's a character in it called the Queen of Underland. She's a baddie. And she rules this kind of underground kingdom. And she captures three of the heroes of the story, Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum, in her underground cavern, in her underground lair. 
But rather than killing them or torturing them or inflicting any kind of pain on them at all, she adopts a far subtler tactic, which is this. She tries to convince them that this underground world is all there is. Oh, there's, there's no cave. There's no land above. Narnia doesn't exist. This cave right here, this is it. And then she fills the cave with drowsy smells and soft, comforting music. And then, simply put, she just lies to them. She says things like this. Oh, there's no land of Narnia. How, how ridiculous. Do you think there's a world in the stones and caverns of this roof? Ha, ha, ha. Puddleglum tries to fight back. He's like, no, I've been to Narnia. I've tasted that world. I've tasted Narnia. I know it's true. She just makes the idea sound more and more and more ridiculous. Jill brings to mind Aslan, the great lion. And the queen is like, Aslan, oh no, he's just a big cat. And Jill, Jill begins to succumb to the spell. She says this, I, I suppose that other world, it must all have been a dream. That there was never any other world than this one right now. This right here, this must be it. It's a picture of the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. Now, the, the Bible is an epic story of God's plan to redeem not just us, but all of creation. But like all great stories, there is an enemy, the devil and his minions, who wants to violently oppose and obstruct the work of God in your life and in the church. And we find ourselves against that opponent in the midst of that battle right now. Now, I realize in a crowd this size, it stands to reason that there are some people who are just kind of exploring the whole faith thing. And right now you're like, I'm not sure I even believe in God. And now the speaker's gone all sci-fi on me. Like, what is going on here? Let me say a couple of things. Firstly, we love it that you're here. And I hope you feel very welcome indeed. And that Christchurch is a safe place to wrestle through and grapple with any and every Christian. Like, don't simply take anybody at the front's word for it. Ask, grapple, wrestle stuff through. Secondly, if I can just say one thing on this whole spiritual warfare uh, concept. The Christian worldview is simply this, that there is a spiritual dimension to life. That the queen of underland is lying. That this world is not all there is. That there is a God. He's real and loves us very, very much. And he has revealed himself primarily in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And when you look at the world through that spiritual lens, it's much easier to realize that if there is a good God, and if I look at the brokenness in the world, that there must be an opponent. There must be darker forces at work. That, that evil is not simply the bad things that people do. No, there's a darkness. There's a force behind that. And, and the Bible's just very clear. That we find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual battle. And there is an enemy, the devil, who wants to destroy everything in your life. He wants to ruin your marriage. And your family. He wants your community to disintegrate. He wants you to lack purpose in your work. He wants you to fail and mess up. He is against you in any and every way. You look like you need a quote from my hero, J.R.R. Tolkien. Let me give you one. <laughs> he says this in The Hobbit, it does not do, it does not do, to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Have you taken the dragon into your calculations? You know, sometimes spiritual warfare will come through external circumstances. Uh, just to be clear, I'm not saying every external circumstance is like every challenge we face is spiritual in nature. That would be ridiculous. Some, though, certainly. But the queen of Underland, so to speak, will love it way, way, way more if we can do her work for her. If we just end up believing her lies. 
I was doing some training on spiritual warfare with the team in Sutton uh, just a week before this one. We're a year into Sutton. It's been a mixture of battle and breakthrough. And one of the things I said was this, there are four main lies that the Queen of Underland will whisper in our ears. Oh, there are many more, but here's the big four. Number one, God is no good. Aslan, oh, he's just a big cat. That challenge you're facing, he's not big enough to get you out of it. Doesn't really love you anyway. He is distant and aloof and mean. God is no good. Line number two, you are no good. You are a failure and a loser, and you will not amount to anything. Oh, he'll remind you of your sins. He'll make you feel guilty and ashamed. He'll get you to remember all the ways that you have failed in life. He'll get you to compare yourself negatively with others. He'll say, look at these amazing people over there. Oh, if God's real, he might use them. You, never. Line number three, your future is no good. That challenge you're in and you're facing right now, you'll never get out of it. That darkness that won't lift, you're stuck with it forever. That new job you've taken on, that ministry you've just started, it's going to fail. 2020 is going to be a bad year for you. And line number four, the church is no good. Ah, look at Susan Boyle. She won't amount to anything. Do you remember that Christian that let you down, broke your heart? Do you remember that Christian leader that sinned really badly? Oh, it doesn't happen in the world. You want to avoid the church, then you won't get that kind of pain in your life. Can anyone recognize the lies of the Queen of Underland in your ear, even in the last year? Oh, we should all live with a sense of call from God. There's a bigger story for us. But when we step into it, my friends, we find ourselves in a battle. Have you taken the dragon into your calculations? And this brings us to Act 3 which for Zerubbabel is this, the call dies. The vision goes. The battle's lost. Makes him want to quit, give up, walk away. Or at least, at least he realizes I can't win this battle in my own strength. See, what happens is through this internal negativity and this external opposition, it's at least partly spiritual in nature. What does Zerubbabel do? He, he quits. It's often the way spiritual warfare makes us feel. He just wants to walk away. The work, the work stops, not actually just for a few days or weeks or months, for around about 16 years. When imagine they had this great vision, this great celebration, this great party. Look at the greatest story. Look at all that's to come. And then there's over five and a half thousand days of nothing at all. What does Zerubbabel do during that time? We have no idea. Bible doesn't say. But I think we can conclude two things. Number one, some of the negativity out there got into his heart in here. One of the reasons I think we can conclude this is after 16 years of nothing, two prophets come into his life, Haggai and Zechariah, next to each other in the Old Testament. And one of the things we read in Zechariah 4 is this. The prophets say to him, Zerubbabel, don't despise the day of small things. Now call me Columbo. But I'm going to guess he said that because maybe Zerubbabel has been despising the day of small things. Maybe he's been looking at the new venue and thinking, oh, not as big as the last one. I'm not sure the promise is going to get fulfilled. I think the people let us down. I think I'm going to fail. God won't fulfill his promise. And the negativity just seeps into his soul. But let me uh, 
lighten the mood with a, an illustration on this. Um, just before Christmas, I succumbed uh, to a profound moment of personal weakness uh, when I agreed to get our first ever family pet. Um, my, uh, my boy Brody, who's nine, uh, was desperate for a dog. Uh, my girl Mia, who's seven, uh, was desperate for a cat. And uh, my girl Emily, who's four, was desperate for a unicorn. <laughs> so uh, we uh, narrowed it down to a dog or a unicorn, of course. Uh, God hates cats. Um, and on Boxing Day, Pixie came into our lives. Oh, really cute. Dog's, dog's cute too, I think you'd agree. Um, and here's what I love about dogs. Dogs are just positive and upbeat about everything. Like everything that goes on in life, they're just like, yeah! Like, I came across an article in the Huffington Post that amused me mildly. It contrasted the daily diary of a dog with the daily diary of a cat. Uh, I'll read some of it to you. Daily diary of a dog uh, goes like this. 8 o'clock, dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30, car ride, my favorite thing. 9.40, walk in the park, my favorite thing. 10.30, got rubbed and patted, my favorite thing. 1 p.m., played in the garden, my favorite thing. 3 p.m., wagged my tail, my favorite thing. And on and on and on it goes. <laughs> daily diary of a dog. Then we get to the daily diary of a cat, which goes more like this. Day 983 of my captivity. <laughs> My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while I'm given the food of prison inmates. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. Today, I was almost successful in my attempt to assassinate one of my tormentors by weaving around his feet as he was walking. Must try this tomorrow, but at the top of the stairs. And on and on and on it goes. Now, here's the point. Zerubbabel has turned into a cat person. That's what happened. Man, this illustration was much better on paper. But anyway, <laughs> on we go. So Robert Bell's turned into a cat person. Can I just ask you what's going on in your heart? You ever in danger of being a cat person? Like spotting the negative anywhere, everywhere? Oh, don't like this about LSE. Oh, this part in church isn't going well. Oh, like, what's the trajectory for us? Like, what's the future hold? Negative? Like, you in danger of being a cat person? Or, or if you come to church today like a dog person? Sunday, my favorite thing. I get to set up church, my favorite thing. I get to worship God, my favorite. Andy speaking, my favorite thing. Like, it's like, what's happening in here? For Zerubbabel, it's just gloom everywhere. Like the negativity out there, he just feels like he's succumbed to the lies. God's let me down. I've let me down. The people have let me down. The future's no good. And then there's a second thing that happens when we kind of lose the battle in terms of spiritual warfare. You see, even those without faith know it, it's hard to live with disappointment and negativity in your soul the whole time. Like, it's just really toxic. How do you deal with, oh, I had this dream and it failed? Like, you can't think about that. It just kind of poisons the soul. So what do you do? I mean, this is the rubber bell's challenge. You see, after 16 years of nothing, he's still in Jerusalem. Now, here's why that's a problem. You see, in Jerusalem, the temple isn't an incidental. It's like central to everything that goes on in life. Business, law, government, commerce, the works. And so every single day, whatever he is involved in, there's this permanent reminder, Zerubbabel, you failed. The people let you down. God didn't fulfill his promise. Like, look at this measly foundation. You didn't complete the job you got, Zerubbabel. It's like discouragement everywhere. How do you handle that? Here's how you handle it. You distract yourself. I can't think about the pain, so I'll just focus on other things. And we know this happens because the thrust of Haggai's message to him is this. Why are you working on paneled houses when the Lord's house remains a ruin? Now, just to be clear, there is nothing wrong with paneled houses. But the prophet's like, 
Why are you focusing on this? Like, you're forgetting the bigger story, guys. There's an adventure into which you're called. Like, don't miss it. One of the uh, most provocative books I read last year was written by an author and journalist uh, called Tony Reinker. It's called Competing Spectacles. And he talks about the age of distraction in which we live. Often we just find it hard to face up to reality. So we just give ourselves to like lesser stuff. And one of the points he makes is this tendency to like avoid fighting for the best, to settle for less than the best. It's like always been part of human nature. You know, in ancient Rome, like they loved distractions. They loved the games. They loved entertainments. And he quotes an early church father, Tertullian, who said this, it is impossible to feed yourself on the cultural spectacles of the age with no ill effects on your faith. I've not got time to read the stats to you, but we all know around us every day, internet, media, TV, social media, other projects to get involved in. Nothing necessarily wrong with any of them, but do we give ourselves to them to avoid fighting for the breakthrough, the stuff we long for in here? One guy who knows something of this is David Foster Wise. I wasn't religious, or at least wasn't a Christian, but he said this, I don't have a TV, because if I have one, I'll watch it all the time. After an hour, I'm not even enjoying watching it, because I feel guilty at how unproductive I'm being, except feeling guilty makes me anxious, which I want to soothe by distracting myself, so I watch TV even more, and it just gets depressing. Can anyone relate? Zerubbabel lives with this pain and disappointment. It's like, I can't face that, so I'll just settle for less than the best. I mentioned earlier, we long for revival. We've been talking about it for a couple of years, and as far as I can see, there's no revival yet. What do we do? Do do we give up? Do we walk away? Do we say, oh, that was just a fad for us. That was a phase for us as a church. This brings us to Act chapter 4. Here's the $64 billion question. How do I persevere for breakthrough? How do I fight for breakthrough? Two very simple things I think the prophets do for Zerubbabel. Number one is this. We need to hear the call again. We need to remember the vision, God's great story. Or perhaps if I can put it a different way, if the primary way the Queen of Underland fights us is through telling us lies, we need to remember the truth. The picture language in Zechariah 4 and around it can sound really confusing. You know, oil and olive trees and lampstands. Basically, it all amounts to one thing, which is this, a completed temple. The prophets are saying, remember the promise, Zerubbabel. Still bearing God. There's this wonderful moment where we, there's this picture of the crowd or shouting in Zechariah 4, God bless it, God bless it. And the capstone is in the hands of Zerubbabel. The capstone is the final and most important brick in the wall. It's the last one that goes in. The picture is of Zerubbabel completing the building. It's like, don't forget the promise of God. Don't forget the great story. Through this temple, the world's going to get impacted. And the symbolism actually goes even deeper. See, it got a bit confusing towards the end of Zechariah 4. There's this dialogue with the angel about, you know, two olive trees, two branches. Oh, what are these? Don't you know? No, my Lord. Ah, says the angel. These are the two anointed ones to serve the Lord of all the earth. Oh, got it. Right, got it. What is that all about? Who are the two anointed ones? Well, you need to understand Zechariah 3 to kind of read it to to get it. We didn't have time to do that. So let me summarize it for you. The two anointed ones are Zerubbabel, the king figure, and Joshua, the high priest. The high priest who connects people to God and the king whose rule and reign extends over the earth. 
And so the picture is of the king figure and the priest figure coming together in the temple through which people will be connected to God and God's rule and reign will be extended over the earth. And the reason this is significant is because just a few verses earlier in Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet says to Joshua and to Zerubbabel this, and the verse will come on the screen, listen you, you men who are symbolic of things which are to come. A servant's going to come. The branch. Not two branches now, just the one. Someone's going to come who is the king priest, who will connect people to God, and whose rule and reign will extend everywhere. Little foreshadowing of Jesus. In other words, the answer to the question, how do you fight for breakthrough? In its simplest form is this, you need to look to Jesus, the king priest. If you've been listening to the lie, is God any good? Look at Jesus. And you realize, oh, he's not just good, he's amazing. If you've been listening to the lie, are you any good? Look at Jesus. Look at what he went through for you. Look how much he loves you. If you've been listening to the lie, your future is no good. Look at Jesus. In his darkest moment on the cross, excruciating pain, it's not the end of the story. If you are going through what feels like a dark night of the soul right now, look to the one who's got resurrection power. If you've been listening to the lie, the church is no good and is going to fail. Look to Jesus. Look at his love for the church. Look at his plans for the church. Remind yourself of his words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You want to fight for breakthrough? Look at Jesus Christ. Tony Reinker in that book I mentioned earlier, he kind of concludes by saying this. In sum, he says, like this is what the book's about, all my concerns are dwarfed by this one, boredom with Jesus. In the digital age, boredom with Christ is the chief warning signal to alert us that the spectacles of this world are suffocating our hearts from the supreme spectacle of the universe. Are we in danger of getting bored with Jesus? And then he says this, and I just want to be clear, I'm not living this out yet. I found it very challenging, but he says, he quotes a pastor, David Platt, who says this, you don't become like Christ by beholding TV all week. And you don't become like Christ by beholding the internet all week. And you don't become like Christ when you fill your life and mind with the things of this world. You become like Christ when you behold the glory of Christ and expose your life moment by moment to his glory. How do I know the future's good for you as a service? Jesus. Don't get bored with him. How do I know the future's good for you personally? Jesus. The same power that conquered the grave lives in you right now. How do you fight for breakthrough? Look at Christ. And then, and then, other thing, one other thing. As you look at Christ, you get filled with the Spirit of God and you do everything he asks you to do. You know, often when I hear talks on perseverance, oh, they make me so tired. Because I feel like it's all on me to work harder and do more and serve longer. Oh, not here. It's all grace. Not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. Wonderful symbolism in this chapter on oil. Oil throughout the Bible is a symbol of the Spirit of God. You need oil to light the lamps to shine light in the darkness. How does the church's mission succeed shining light in the darkness? You need the oil of the Spirit. In fact, Joshua and Zerubbabel are referred to, the anointed ones, as sons of oil in the Hebrew. 
Firms of the Spirit of God. That's what we're to be too. But then, but then it's not all God. He invites us into this dynamic relationship and we have to do everything he asks us to do. Which for Zerubbabel is what he got asked to do in the first place. Just go build the temple, will you? Ordinary brick on top of ordinary brick on top of ordinary brick until the promise is fulfilled. And it's exactly the same for us. We get filled with God's power and strength and then we do everything he asks us to do. Can I ask you a question? What's the Spirit of God asking you to do at the start of this year? One final illustration to earth this. I want you to imagine a sailboat. Imagine a sailboat has to cross a lake. No engine on it. Imagine it has to get to a, to a destination. Well, of course, it needs the wind. So here's the question. Is receiving the wind an active thing or a passive thing? Well, of course, it's always both. If I busy myself on deck doing loads of boat things that boat people do, and there's no wind, I'm going to go nowhere. But if I stand on deck and the wind blows and I do nothing, I'm going to go nowhere. It's just going to drift. What needs to happen is the wind needs to blow, and then I listen, and I respond, and I attune, and I put the sails in the right place. And as I respond to the wind, I get to my intended destination. And when I get there, if people say, wow, Andy, how did you do that? I'm never going to say, I did it in my own strength. I did it through the power of the wind. But I wasn't passive in the midst of it. It's exactly the same with the Spirit of God. I receive God's presence and power. But then I attune and I listen. And sometimes it looks like wrestling it through. Like God gives me a picture. And just like Zechariah, prophet of God, what does that mean? You ask questions and grapple, I think God might be saying this. And as I respond to God and the presence of his spirit, I get to where he intends me to go. What's the spirit asking you to do? There is a call upon you as a service. There's a call upon us as a church. There's a call on your life. Live with one foot raised. There's a bigger story for you. But I want to warn you, entering that story means there's a battle, my friends. It'll make you want to quit, walk away and give up. How do you overcome? Look at Jesus. And then get filled with his spirit and follow him. Do everything he asks of you. Can I ask us to stand? Maybe I can invite the band uh, back to the front. As with every week, uh, there's an opportunity to come get prayer at the end of the service. Maybe you feel like I need the wind of God in my sails right now. Maybe you feel like you're in the midst of a battle. Maybe you feel like I, I just need a fresh sense of call from God. Before we get to any of that, I just want us to look to Jesus. And I want to encourage you as we sing whatever worship song we're going to sing, like actively do business with Jesus in your heart. Almost use these words as a way of saying, I will not listen to the lies of the Queen of Underland again. As I sing these words, I trust God is very, very good. And he loves me so very much. And I know the future's good because he's beaten even death. And his plans for the church won't fail. Let me pray for us very simply before we sing. Spirit of God, we invite you to come now. Breathe your power, your presence, your wind into us now. May we receive a call from you again.
May old promises come alive. May we live with expectation of the bigger story in which we get to play a part. May fear and insecurity go in Jesus' name. Come Holy Spirit. As we sing now, lift our gaze to Jesus. As we try to make that decision, would you strengthen us and help us to do that? And as we look to you, I pray for just a sweet moment of encounter across this room. For every individual, for us as a church, may it feel like as we sing these words, we are connecting with the living power of God himself. And that the challenges we face in the future will not be overcome through our own might or power, but by your spirit. So may we actively receive your wind now as we worship. Come, Lord Jesus, come by your spirit now. We love you and we honor you.